Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This episode of the New Statesman podcast is supported by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and simple to build your own professional website and online shop. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter the offer code STATESMAN at checkout. A better web starts with your website. Welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis, and this week I'll be talking to George Eaton and Anoush Shikalian about the resignation of Saeed Avasi and Boris's return to Westminster. Then Ian Steadman will talk to artist Cory Archangel and BuzzFeed's Jonah Peretti about a novel that collects people tweeting about talking about working on their novel. Yes, it's very meta. Finally, I talk to John Ellidge and Barbara Speed about what makes a city anyway. If you were hoping for a quiet summer, you'll be disappointed. First, we had the resignation of Saeed Avasi on a point of principle over the invasion of Gaza. And now Boris Johnson has thrown his hat into the ring for a seat in Westminster. I'm joined by political editor George Eaton and Anusha Kalian, acting editor of The Staggers, to talk about the week in politics. George, how big of a bombshell was Boris? Well, it wasn't a, a bombshell in that we were all expecting it. And the rumours had been growing louder in recent weeks. Um, there's a prime seat for him in Uxbridge. Uh, the selection contest for that is um, early September. So he had to make his move. Um, everyone um, on the Conservative side agrees that this had to be settled before the party conference. Um, and it's quite obvious why he wants to return to Westminster Um, in 2015 because uh, as things stand the Tories are set to lose the election and he wants to make sure that he's in that leadership contest and you've had Theresa May and George Osborne both positioning themselves for the post-Cameron era and Boris had to move now to uh, to keep the momentum up. I love this idea that he's going to stand in Uxbridge because that's essentially the Heathrow seat right so there are a lot of jobs in Uxbridge that are reliant on Boris Island, sadly, the, uh, the idea of an airport in the Thames estuary never becoming true. So he's going to have to do a pretty big switch around on mm. that one, isn't he? Which you can imagine he could do. I mean, I always say that Boris is a Marxist of the Groucho variety, that these are my principles, and if you don't like them, I have other ones. And it was astonishing, wasn't it, Anoush? You wrote a blog where you said, you know, no, 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 no. <laughs> I can't remember the number of no's. But the number of times that he's denied that he's going 
to run. And yet in Boris, we don't see this as sort of inconsistency or, you know, um, intransigence. It's kind of, oh, Boris being Boris. Of course he said he wasn't going to run, but he is going to run. Yeah, and I, I went back through news articles from 2011. I found that 17 times at least he'd, he'd denied that he'd run. But the way that he says it is like a joke anyway. So no one has to believe him and he's got away with, with not saying it. Um, and I think it will be interesting to look back and see how many times he's denied he wants to be Tory leader and also how many times he's denied he, he wants to be prime minister wasn't there something about being reincarnated as an as an olive I was yeah. going to say was it an otter but no it was, <laughs> of course of course it was an olive that makes so much more sense <laughs> this is obviously a, a very bad time for David Cameron I think we sort of heard about him he wasn't given any forewarning was he George no he wasn't um, but I, I think he is being sincere when he says that he wants Boris on the pitch because he recognises that it's going to be a very tough election for the Conservatives uh, most uh, optimist, the most optimistic prediction for them is that they'll just sort of hung, hang on as the largest party. Um, Boris is someone who can reach voters that Cameron can't, um, and he is someone who will give the Tories presence in in marginal seats purely by visiting there, and will um, boost the morale of of activists. But it is difficult for Cameron because you know, Boris has positioned himself on on Europe, for instance, in a way that Cameron uh, doesn't feel he can. Um, and because he is the most popular politician in the country. And now, even if Cameron hangs on as prime minister, he's going to have someone next to him who many Tories think would do a better job. And he also made positioning clear on Gaza as well, which mm. is, is, is pretty, you know, for a mayor of London, is, is, is you kind of think, well, why, why do I care what you think about what's happening in the Middle East? But obviously he's trying to burnish his credentials as a kind of international statesman. Um do you think it will work? Do you think that we can... We, we obviously, you know, and I mean we in the sense of the general public, people like clown Boris. They think he's really popular. They think he's great on Have I Got News For You. He's run... He's quite, he has a slightly questionable record in terms of how well he's run uh, London as mayor. Do you think people are ready to see him as a serious politician? Um, I think I think it probably will work because, as George was saying, he is the most popular politician in Britain at the moment. And he is going to have to be an MP for a while before he starts positioning to be Tory leader. Um, and so people will get used to seeing him being an MP, being in Parliament again, talking in the in the chamber. And we know from seeing Boris be Mayor of London that he, he does a very good speech and he talks very well and he uses very colourful language. And I think that will work for a while and people will enjoy watching him. Um, but when he starts trying to jostle for the Tory leadership if he does um, that will be a different story because then he is going to have to get more serious and also if he does get a position in 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 the cabinet then he's going to have to be on message which I imagine is quite difficult for Boris. I think it's kind of hard to take that historical perspective and remember how badly his previous forays into frontline pol politics mm. ended you know the inverted pyramid of piffle uh, which was his defence about allegations that he'd had an affair that obviously turned out to be an inverted pyramid of fact <laughs> as it happened but um there is a real problem about the fact that he is another Etonian, and I think this is fascinating, the idea that Ca David Cameron obviously feels that his background is a, is a weakness, that the idea that he, he's very sensitive to the charge that he's leading a government of, of southern white men who are you know, very well off and, uh, and don't have to worry about money. And then the sort of solution to that is a guy who also went to Eton, <laughs> went to Oxford, Again, as, as you know, we referred to his telegraph salary of £250,000 a year as, as chicken feed. It's astonishing, isn't it, George, that he's managed to create a kind of man of the people image. It is. Um, and I think you're absolutely right that Boris isn't the figure that the Conservatives need if they really want to reinvent themselves in, I think, the way that they have to do if they are to be a majority party again. 
that Boris could give them what could be a short-term boost in the polls, may not be a long-lasting one. Perhaps he could even get them a, a small majority at the, at the election. But he's not going to be sort of Thatcher in, in, in reverse almost, which I think is what the Tories need. They need to stop being seen as the party of the rich. They need to do much more to appeal to ethnic minorities and, and to women. Um, and I think the jury's out on, um, on on Boris on that. It's the idea of going back to being a party that sells itself as aspiration, that sells itself as the dream is that everybody can get rich if they just try hard enough. And you say, well, you know, Alexander Boris de Feffel Johnson maybe didn't have the greatest experience of that. Let's move on, Anoush, just to talk a little bit about Saeed Avasi, um, who stepped down with a kind of an astonishing resignation letter. Do you think anyone was expecting that to happen? Um well, there are people who are being cynical about the timing of her departure. Um, some say that she she insisted on staying in government so that she could resign over. Something so this is the principle. reshuffle, apparently. Yes, yeah. Um, but I actually think that um, the way that she went and the language of the resignation letter was actually quite powerful because she called it morally indefensible, and she she also gave some insight into the way that um, the government's been working under David Cameron and saying that people officials in the Foreign Office are actually worried about the way that he's approaching foreign policy. So it was um, an enlightening departure, if nothing else. And George, we talked a little bit about the Tories' problem with ethnic minority voters. I think it's the Lord Ashcroft polling that showed that you know being non-white was the biggest predictor of not voting Tory at the mm. last election. Is the departure of such a high-profile non-white face, I mean, that leaves only Saeed Javid in the Cabinet, a, a problem in image terms, if nothing else, for David Cameron? I think it is, although I wouldn't overstate that because I, I, I doubt most of the public know who Varsi is. Um, I think the bigger problem is actually that they, the Conservatives are in the wrong place on an issue which quite a, a, a surprisingly high, well not surprisingly, but by the standards of politics, a lot of people will care about. This is Israel Gaza. Uh, yeah, that and um, the public, uh, by an overwhelming majority, think uh, Israel's actions are disproportionate. They want David Cameron to speak out on this. Um, MPs have been getting a lot of correspondence on this. And I, I, I don't think it will be a particularly big issue come, come the election. But in, in close elections, things at the margins matter. And this is this is an issue which uh, which which will lose the Conservatives' votes. And it's also something that Cameron feels personally quite sore about, doesn't he? With what happened in Syria and the fact he feels that he was almost yeah. betrayed by Ed Miliband in terms of Labour not supporting that intervention there. It does. There is an issue here about about David Cameron's foreign policy approach. I mean, moving Philip Hammond into that job, losing William Hague, who was seen as somebody who was you know, rose above partisanship, but had a very cautious approach. Do you think that? There will be, I mean, you say it's an issue at the margins. Do you think there will be votes lost and won on who's in the Foreign Office and what our approach to foreign policy is? Mm. Well, Gaza is an example of foreign policy becoming domestic policy. Um, Ed Miliband has taken what is a principled stance, but also a politically astute one. Um, the irony, actually, is that back in 2006, when, when Tony Blair was taking a lot of flack for his position on the Lebanon offensive, David Cameron criticised him then as, uh, as, as for failing to condemn Israel's actions as disproportionate and said, you know, we should be prepared to speak candidly to our friends. I think this is an example of Cameron's broader failure to reinvent the Conservative Party and to consistently pursue change that um, he's basically abandoned a lot of that new positioning over foreign policy and, and defaulted to a, a traditional sort of realist position where Israel's our ally and um, yes, 
there are double standards, but that's um, yeah, that's that's the conservative approach, and we're not going to we're not going to speak out. Um, and it's the same is true on on economic policy, where Cameron um, took a lot of interesting and, and original positions um, in the early years of his leadership, and now he's basically embraced a quite sort of uh, crude form of Thatcherism. Mm. Um, I think it's a it's I think it's a failure of. Um, an example of his wider failure to be a, a leader for change. Well, I was going to ask you about the Labour jostling for position in the London mail race, but we're running out of time, so I'm going to instead tell people to buy the magazine and read your column or find it on our website at newstatesman.com. Thank you very much, George and Anoush. Now, are you working on a novel? It turns out thousands upon thousands of people on Twitter are, or at least claim that they are. Our science and technology writer, Ian Stedman, spoke to Corey Archangel, who's collected all of these tweets into a book, and his friend, BuzzFeed founder, Jonah Peretti. He starts off by being slightly cheeky about BuzzFeed. Corey, why didn't you publish this on BuzzFeed as a listicle? Oh, that is a great first question. Because, comma... Actually, the first time when I thought of this idea, I was working as a BuzzFeed editor, a guest editor. Right, oh. Jonah? It was a guest yeah. editor? Yeah. As, as one of my posts, I posted to a just, it was just a link, which was to a URL, which was a, a live search on Twitter for the phrase working on my novel. So actually, it was published first <laughs> on BuzzFeed. But this was like very early BuzzFeed, maybe... And Jonah, correct me if I'm wrong. It was before BuzzFeed was the BuzzFeed that we know it. Yeah, it was. It was a period of BuzzFeed where we were in a little office in Chinatown in in New York, and we had I don't know maybe a dozen people, and it was really a lab. And the reason Corey was was in the office was that I would just find interesting friends and say, "Hey, you want to come one day a week and post on BuzzFeed?" And Corey was one of the the friends who who took me up on it and why why specifically working on my novel were you distracted trying to work on a novel at the time well uh it's funny laughing at people who were distracting themselves on twitter twitter was like it was 2009 so actually twitter was it wasn't like brand new but it was new-ish in culture Mm -hmm. and i was just trying to wrap my head around it because you remember that was and Jonah, am I right? Like that was still the era of the blog, I think. Yeah, blogging was still was still big. You know, Facebook wasn't was a, was a simple social network. It didn't have any content on it. It was just a way to connect with your friends. Twitter was a lot smaller. And I think it. You know, in terms of watching Corey over the years, he, he often plays with things and gets an idea, and then does something many years later with the idea. Like if the like if the idea sticks with him. For five years, then it's probably a pretty good idea, and he should he should do something. So I think this is another example of that with this with this book, which is it wasn't like he thought of it and just did it the next week and said, "Oh, like this is an easy idea. I'll just like round up a bunch of tweets and have a book." This was something that he'd been thinking about for for like many years. Five years from beginning to end. So what Jonah was saying, basically, all of a sudden we had like micro like people were just tweeting sentences and that was a new thing. And so I was trying to figure out like, well, what is it? I mean, it, it, it's hard to remember. It's hard to even think about now, but like, 
uh, like, what does it mean that that's new? And then, of course, it seemed perfectly obvious to contrast it to the novel, right? I mean, that was like the first thing that came to my head. It seems like a, a really funny rejoinder to the, at the moment, there's a lot of discussion about the idea of using things like Twitter for 21st century fiction, kind of um, the, the novelist David Mitchell, for instance, is tweeting out stage by stage bits of his new novel. And this just seems like a really funny kind of response to that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's a response, uh, but I definitely think of it as a novel, like mm. a novel novel. And it's fiction. We, we decided that it was fiction because we had a long conversation and, and we purposely made it like in the, you know, the Penguin default novel template. Yeah. So it really feels like a novel. It smells like a novel. Um, but, you know, I, I do really think of it as like a real book, you know? Yeah. When you had that long conversation about why it's a novel, it, do you think it has a narrative, for instance, even though it's just a series of tweets? Um, well, actually, the long conversation at Penguin was whether it was fiction or nonfiction. Because mm. <laughs> we could have really went either way, I think. But fiction, to me, seemed more poetic, mm. you know? Uh, but on my end, yeah, there is a narrative. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. If, if you have the book, there are these kind of like. Um, tea kettle drawings in it and those kind of serve as the chapter markers between different sections mm -hmm. so there's a kind of like chill section there's a kind of um culture section where people are talking about the kind of culture that they surround themselves with while, while writing the novel there's a kind of punchline section which is the section that just says working on my novel page after page there is a desperation section where people are getting really stressed <laughs> out. You know what I mean? And then there's a triumph section, which is what the book ends up. The book kind of ends on a high note, mm. kind of creative triumph. <laughs> well, I would say the, the book itself is a triumph, a literary triumph. <laughs> <laughs> I, think you, I think you said something. So, yeah. And it's, <clears throat> the, other, the other thing I find so interesting is, is that so much of the interesting things that have emerged on the web have come out of procrastination. Like, and, and I think it's probably true in art as well, but uh, I mean, I, my whole career is based on procrastinating, writing my master's thesis and discovering accidentally sort of the viral web. And mm. I think, I think uh, it, 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 you know, the, the, the sort of relationship between procrastination and doing meaningful work is is pr is pretty interesting right right now and mm -hmm. it's sometimes the things that people dismiss the most are, are actually some of the most valuable generative kinds of activities yeah it's funny jonah you say that because there's a really great artist in new york named david hammonds and he has this great line where I can't remember it exactly, but it was like the idea when he's in his studio going from point A to point B to complete a task. It's like what he does on the way, like just by wasting time is where all his good, he said, all his good ideas come from. So uh, I think there is something about procrastination or when you turn off your mind, it's kind of like when you relax. It, it also reminds me of your line of surfwear. Um, it's, you know, 
clothes and apparel for when you're lying in bed surfing the internet, which is which is uh, essentially uh, lifestyle products created by Corey for for the art to improve the art of procrastination and some level. That's the thing, actually. Even for this book, and I'm sure Jonah knows about this, like things that, you know, for this book, I had to write a spider that actually recorded Twitter, the working on my novel mentions for two years. Because mm-hmm. Twitter doesn't, or at least at the time, didn't have an archive. And then I needed to write a kind of content management system in order to kind of administer the permissions and mm-hmm. keep track of whether people wanted to be in the novel or not. So actually, the book was quite a bit of work and actually took quite a bit of software and staring at Excel spreadsheets. It's like sometimes often things that look easy might sometimes aren't so easy, but often sometimes things that are easy are also very easy. Going back to the idea of working on my novel, having a narrative, it's just occurred to me that, um, do you consider Buzzfeed to have a, a narrative and be a work of fiction as a whole? If we're, if we're talking about viral content. Oh, I love it, Jonah. Go for it. Well, so Buzz, BuzzFeed is, is more things than people realize. We do news content, which is definitely not fiction. Um, you know, we have two reporters in, in, mm. Ukraine, in Ukraine right now. We have, um, did our first reporting from inside Baghdad recently. Um, we have an investigative journalism team that's covering all different kinds of things, a breaking news team. So a whole bunch of news, news which, is, which is relatively new to us as a company. We, ha- we weren't doing that when Corey was hanging out with us back back in those early days. Uh, and then we are an entertainment company that makes like lists and quizzes and 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 that I think is 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 fiction in the broadest sense of fun, entertaining content and there's a lot of storytelling to it. Um, and then we also do um, a lot of life content or lifestyle content. Um, things like, you know, DIY and food and um, things th- things that are focused on p- improving people's lives, um, which mm-hmm. is more more service oriented content. So I would say those are sort of the three the three broad categories, mm. um, and then and then our video operation in Los Angeles is now you know we're on a three acre studio lot and we've been building that out and and um, we are doing a lot of work in sort of f- the future of fiction and where what where will storytelling go and that's led by Zay Frank who is another uh, very interesting guy who is doing a lot of really great early mm. early work on the internet. Um, I do I remember loving a lot of his work. And actually, it's fun. The one thing that's it, maybe I can go in the other direction. The one thing that's fun about a book is because it's it's like really locked down. Mm. And I lived, and I have, and I'm sure Jonah probably also. You really live in this digital world, which is basically a temporary performance at all. Like everything is so ephemeral. You know what I mean? And so for me, it's been so fun to like lock something down in on a piece of paper. You know because it's it's so different from what I'm used to have been doing for the last 20 years. I mean, yeah, as a piece of archival technology, a book is like really unbeatable. Battery never dies. Just um, gotta be careful. Of, you gotta be careful of fires. Yeah, that's what I was just gonna say about like the Alexandria Library or something. You know, like you have like one Achilles heel of a book. Yeah, it's <laughs> fire. <laughs> well, let's hope that there are no fires, <laughs> really. Or um, I guess EMPs either, because then the entire ephemerality of the internet will disappear as well. What uh, is EMP? Electromagnetic pulse. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, is that a real thing? I always it hear is, people yeah. talk about that. It is. Um, it's a side effect of nuclear explosions, Ugh. which is, you know, obviously a cheery topic. But um, 
you you'll be laughing when you have a book and everyone's complaining that their tablets are dead. Yeah, I think actually the book is also available as a Kindle, which I think I have to take a look at. That sounds really cool to me. It'll be it'll be great in the post post nuclear post apocalyptic world that we'll be still be able to read the tweets about people procrastinating on their novels. <laughs> <laughs> I love it's like, civilization has survived. <laughs> Uh, um, and I think on that note that's a good time to put it closer thanks very much guys alright thank you thank you so much this episode of the New Statesman podcast is supported by Squarespace the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and simple to build your own professional website and online shop The easy-to-use drag-and-drop tools, responsive designs, and 24-7 customer support teams based in New York and Dublin mean you can create a beautifully designed website for as little as £5 a month. This includes a free domain name when you sign up for a year. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code STATESMAN to get 10% off and show your support for the new Statesman. No credit card required. Start building your website today. I'm joined by John Ellidge and Barbara Speed, who are part of our very new, very shiny website, citymetric.com, which is all about the business of cities. John, you wrote a post this week which attempted to tackle what seems on the surface a very easy question, but actually turned out to be quite complicated, which is, what is a city? So, what is a city, John? Well, Helen, as you correctly say, it's actually surprisingly complicated. Um, The reason I wrote the piece is that with Citymetric, we're going to be playing with a lot of data, comparing different cities around the world and in terms of their their prices, the the cost of living, residential costs, that kind of thing. Um, And one of the problems you quickly run into when you're sort of comparing data between any two cities is that no two cities around the world actually define themselves in the same way. So if you look at the, the official definition of Paris... It's actually quite a small area. It's about, I think, maybe five or eight miles across, but it, it's far from the whole whole sort of urban built-up area. Whereas, if you look at Greater London, it's not perfect, but it, it, it's a relatively good approximation of where where the sort of concrete stops. So you kind of instantly run into these kind of definitional questions of if you're comparing Paris and London, are you accidentally comparing an, an inner city with a whole metropolitan area? Um, so, it, so yes, we 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 ran up, wrote a piece of compare explaining all these definitions we're going to be playing with and uh, basically covering our backs for when we run into trouble later. You haven't answered my question though, John. What is a city anyway? Uh, we're about to explore some very boring stuff for the New Statesman podcast, but it's basically it won't be based the first on, time. It won't be the first time. Uh, it's it's basically about population density. So Eurostat, the official statistical agency of the European Union. Uh, has a very similar definition to the US authorities. Uh, Eurostat says it's uh, 400 people per square kilometre. The US authorities go with 1,000 per square mile, and they're about the same. So it's a certain population density. is It defines a metropolitan area. But that has certain odd effects, like places that you wouldn't necessarily consider to be part of London, such as Dartford and Watford and so on, end up included under that definition, which sort of makes sense because they're, they're just commuter towns they exist because of the city even if they they are not uh, governed by our, our, our lord boris johnson our lord high yeah our lord high boris johnson um i think that's really fascinating because when you look back to something like the novels of jane austen you know, highbury was a village which is so the growth of, of london the growth of you know, capital cities generally has been so absurdly well never mind the fact that london was originally several different cities that have just all been kind of sucked into one and you get into a stage where i think it was one of the budget airlines started 
uh, a couple of years ago trying to promote Oxford Airport as London Oxford. They've, they've tried that with Southampton as well. Because so. at some point your city just becomes, the, the borders of it are so well, the, porous. To an extent, London is the whole of the southeast of England. I mean, there are people who commute from, from sort of 50, even 100 miles away. My, my favourite sort of random fact about the growth of London, though, is that Euston Road, which is now just this kind of urban motorway with all the major stations sitting on it, was London's first bypass. That was a, that was a ring road. Uh, that was in open fields when they built it in the 18th century, and sort of a hundred years later, it just got swallowed. That is a top city fact. Uh, um, these are exactly the kind of top city facts that you can find on CityMetric.com. Launched now by the okay. You've got you are you are yeah. exceptionally good at the good segue. Almost as good as actually Robert Webb, who's written a column in this week's magazine, which pivots in the penultimate <laughs> paragraph into plugging his wife's Edinburgh show with amazing grace and ease. Um, Barbara, what's your favourite nerdy city stat that you've unearthed so far, or fact stat or fact? Um, and we did a story uh, last week, which was about a very, very tiny skyscraper, which was in fact only four stories tall. Um, which I was thought it was going to be much smaller man. when you said that. I thought it was going to be like Zoolander style. It'd be like, you know, what is this? A skyscraper for ants? And it was like, you know, a, a foot high. But no. Well, four. yeah. I mean, how did you? So- a bit big for ants, but a bit small for anyone else. Um, skyscrapers technically need to be over a certain height, and this skyscraper isn't even that height. But it was made by a man who tricked his investors into letting him build it by claiming on his blueprints that it was 480 inches tall, but they didn't look at the units. And so they thought it would be 480 feet tall and were understandably quite upset when the finished building was unveiled. And he went, no, it's just much further away than you think. <laughs> yeah, you just he's, keep, he's keep walking out. towards he, he it. He disappeared into the sunset yeah. and was never seen again. I yeah. think that's a start. I think that's really astonishing. I like the fact that we're talking about definitions, that there is a specific definition for a skyscraper, but you never, you know, you never think about it. And there is, obviously, I imagine this will come up a lot, that people just get sucked into, like, the biggest, the weirdest, you know, mm-hmm. the smallest, the, the most pa- densely packed. You know, people always want to kind of see superlatives. I was also intrigued by the story about the boat under the World Trade Center. Yes. Yeah, well, the most interesting thing about that is that you think immediately, why would there ever be a boat under a skyscraper? But actually, New York, or Manhattan as it now is, um, was, was not anywhere near that size for quite a long time. They've just kept expanding and filling in their ports with landfill and getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Because there's a whole bit, isn't um, there, that's reclaimed down there, that then yeah. obviously immediately flooded during Hurricane Sandy because it's incredibly low-lying. Yeah, well, most in fact, because all of the ports were at a level where you could reach the sea really easily and then they created more land by filling in the ports, actually, it's all really low-lying and huge amounts of it are open to flooding. But at least there's a ship under the World Trade Centre. L- London's the way on. done the same in a smaller way, of course, where the embankments along the river are... are the, the River Thames used to be much wider, the embankments, so basically just extra land with, with with sewers and the circle line in it to kind of extend things a little bit. Sewers so, and the circle line yeah. are, are two things that belong together. I hate that, that line. But you're right, and it's one of the things that always comes up about why don't we have ice fairs, why doesn't the Thames freeze anymore? Well, it's because we, uh, we put embankments on it and it now flows tighter and faster mm. through a small amount. It used to be a much more slow flowing river well the 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 stretch between london and tower bridges is known historically as the pool of london and that's because it's very wide and slow moving historically it kind of acted more like a lake you couldn't really see the flow of the water that's really interesting i didn't know that i know that you obviously you shouldn't try and swim across the thames but matthew paris did a couple of uh, years ago he was rescuing a dog at one point it's in his autobiography oh this is a different matthew paris story no no no. matthew paris likes jumping into water to do exciting things so yeah he's kind of his thing he did rescue a dog i think like in the 1970s but no this was a couple of years mind you he also runs marathons in like sub four hours so if anyone's listening and you're not incredibly fit and athletic i think that swimming the thames might be a 
turned out to be very a very idea. poor idea. Um, well, as the site kind of goes forward, what are your what are your kind of particular nerdy obsessions, um, John? That you're going to bring into the site? Uh, I um, I I have long been obsessed with Metro Maps because I I was just that cool at school. Um, yes, I like I like playing with maps. We're we're going to be doing a lot on sort of cycle high schemes, I imagine, because they're 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 quite in at the moment. And you did a, a map of what it would look like if London had a proper orbital railway, didn't you? I, I did, yeah. I mean, that was really just an excuse to, 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 to play with maps all day. And my, my wife actually saw that and didn't realise it was by me. Uh, and she just said to me, you have such a stupid job. <laughs> I thought your wife was going to go, oh, my God, you're going to love this guy. This guy is just as stupid as nerdy and you. But, oh, no, it's No, you. no, we've been together a long time, so she's long ago lost interest. <laughs> well, um, on that slightly tragic note about John's wife, I'm sure John's wife is lovely. Um, I will say thank you very much to John and Barbara. Thank you. Bye. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast. You can find us every week on iTunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Our theme tune is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons, and our producer is Philip Maughan.